Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit, who unites us with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, may he be the one that opens our ears. May he be the one who illuminates your word so that it finds a purchase on our hearts, changes our affections, and enables us to be your presence in the world more faithfully. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So it is Ascension Sunday, or it was Ascension Thursday, and we're celebrating it here on Sunday. So we're going to read the text that's relevant, that talks about Jesus ascending into heaven. We're also going to refer back quite a lot to the text from Ephesians as well. That was uh, the first lesson this morning that came before communion, so you might want to take, a, you know, be, be willing or able to flip back there if you want to follow along with some of the, the thoughts this morning. In the first lesson, in Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now we're going to tie that in to deepening our knowledge and understanding of what is implied and what we're supposed to understand about the ascension. But now our reading from the book of Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, it's what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing upward toward heaven. Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Paul says in Ephesians, when he prays that, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to come to know him, he prays that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, that we may know, know what is the hope to which we are called. We're reminded in, in this that it makes a difference. It makes a difference what we know 
about the hope to which God has called us. There is a relationship between gaining wisdom about God's redemptive acts that are done for us and the world. There's a relationship between gaining wisdom about God's redemptive acts for us, His love for us, His design for us, indeed His desires for all of creation. There's a relationship between deepening our knowledge of that and living into that transformation. There is a a dynamic that goes on there when we deepen our understanding of the mysteries of God, not that we understand them, you know what I mean? When we deepen our knowledge of who God is by the Spirit's revelation of that knowledge to us, it makes a difference to how we live our lives. Now when we talk about this relationship between knowledge of, of God, knowledge of the hope that God is calling us to. When we talk about that relationship between that knowledge and our lived lives, we're talking about the fact that to to know God more deeply results actually in a change in our desires and actions. And when we talk in this way, we are absolutely, as they say in the South, Smack dab. That's, they say that in the South. They don't always then say smack dab in the middle of a mystery, but I will say that this morning. When we talk about the relationship between knowledge and how, it impa- how deepening in that knowledge impacts our life in a transformational way, we are smack dab in the middle of mystery. It is a mystery not unlike what we celebrate each week in the sacrament of communion. When we participate in communion, we don't resolve intellectually the puzzle of how we participate in God's transformative work. We simply and actually, by faith, participate in God's transformative work. You know, the the ability to stand up here and say that to you this morning and mean it with all my frail will, is that shaped our decision, my wife and I, to plan a church, really. It, it got a hold of us so long ago, this, this desire to, to be able to talk about the mysteries of God in such a way that weren't trying to resolve intellectual puzzles, but trying to just confess things that we didn't understand, confess that we are embodied people and that what's most important is that we participate in the mysteries of God as faithfully as we can. And then as we participate more fully in the mysteries of God, our knowledge of God's love deepens. And as our knowledge of God's love deepens, we desire to participate more. It's that back and forth. It's not an intellectual puzzle to be resolved. But when you are doing it, it feels like that's what it means to flourish as a human being. That's just an aside. Paul says that the more we deeply know the story of God's work in the world on behalf of all creation and on behalf of human beings in particular, and we're the crown jewel of God's creation, 
the more we gain wisdom from that knowledge. In other words, Paul is suggesting here in this dynamic back and forth between a deepening and an understanding of God's love for us and the cause and effect relationship that that has to our lived lives. What Paul is saying is that knowledge disciplines our hearts and minds to see God's story as being the true story of our world and our place in it. The more fully that occurs for us, the more fully human we will be. Knowledge and wisdom about God's love for us, when we imbibe it, when we receive it, when we ask God to reveal it to us, draws us more and more deeply into God's presence. Now, on the one hand, this should not be too hard to understand. I mean, think about it. If there's someone who you know very well, and who your experience with them is such that they are reliably a person who has your best interests at heart. Now, you're going to enjoy being in their company, aren't you? You're likely want to, you're going to want to know them more fully and share your life more fully with them. Paul's logic here in that Ephesians passage that we're glancing back at this morning, Paul's logic here is not dissimilar. When you know what God is doing for you, it not only is an encouragement to you, but persuades and energizes you to participate more fully in what God is doing for you. Now, side note, that's why it's important that the church as a body recognizes that it is literally the body of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. The one who reigns now over the church and indeed the whole world is the one and the same Jesus Christ whose cruciform life here on earth embodied a way of hospitality that invited all people to rest in him and to get to know him. And so when we organize our life together as the church, it should be in a way that makes people feel confident that we see our role as limited and defined. We are not a group of people who seeks to patronize and condescend and judge. We are the body of Christ who, in spite of ourselves, is the presence of Jesus in the world. We should be a place where people experience God's love and welcome, where people trust that we have their best interests at heart, where people will feel like, I can belong here before I believe. I can listen to what these people are talking about, about the depth of the mysteries of God's love for human beings and his world. And I can want to hear more about that. I will not be pressured. I will not be manipulated. We are the body of Christ. We create this space of hospitality, just like Jesus did. And we talk about things that we don't understand. We confess mysteries that we can't intellectually resolve. And we say to people, we are bumbling, confused, broken people who understand that somehow we have stumbled upon the mysteries of God and we want to tell you that you as a human being are created in his image. He loves you so much, more than you love yourself. Come into this community and walk with us 
as we learn more and more about God's love. That too is an aside, but I think it's an important one as we think about what Paul is trying to get across in the text in Ephesians. Again, you may want to keep glancing at it because I'm going to refer refer to it just a little bit more here. Now back to that text. What in particular does Paul want you to know? What does he want you to know? Well, it's this, that Jesus regards his inheritance to be inseparable from ours. Man, what if you got a phone call one day from a long-lost cousin Say, hey, you remember, you remember that uh, uncle that you didn't know very well? And, you know, you, got, you always kind of wondered if that uncle liked you. You know what? That uncle left me X amount of money. And because of my relationship with you, I want you to share in that. That's what's going on here in this text in Ephesians. Jesus regards his inheritance to be inseparable from ours. In other words, because of Jesus' incarnation, wherein his divine nature is joined with our human nature, Jesus' bond with our humanity is so strong that the new creation, which is Jesus' inheritance, that's what we're talking about here, the new creation. Jesus' inheritance implicates each and every one of us as well. And that's what Paul confesses here in this mystery. He says, I want you to know, Paul says, what, I quote, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? Jesus' inheritance is to be shared with you. That is the mystery of the incarnation. He has joined his life so solidly to the human race. He beckons all human beings to come to him and share in the new creation that God will bring about one day. And he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. Why? Because as the capacity of our faith expands, And the affections of our heart are stirred towards God as a direct result of our deeper knowledge of his love. Our response will be to desire and pray for more and more of this power. And Paul wants us to know that this is the very same power that raised Jesus again. Here's the scripture from the dead and seated him at God the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. Now, it's that last little bit there about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, that leads us even deeper into the mysteries of God as we contemplate that our union with Jesus is as real to God even now as it will be for us one day in the world to come. Do you understand that? That, No, you don't understand it. That's, That's the whole point of the sermon, right? You intellectually resolve that trouble, that, that, that puzzle. But do you understand what Paul's saying here? When he says that we have been raised up and that we are seated next to Jesus, human God-man Jesus in the world to come, what he's saying there is, is that seat next to Jesus is real to God. It's something that we believe by faith and participate in 
through the mysterious union with Christ and the Holy Spirit, but it is as real to God as it will be for us one day. And Paul says it's important for you to know that. You really need to know that. And you need to be transformed by that knowledge. Paul spells this out clearly when he says, and I quote, this is a few verses later, it's not in front of you, sorry, it's in chapter 2. Trust me, you can look it up later. He writes this. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's right. The Jesus whose ascension is a human being that we read about in Acts. He's the one. And our humanity is united in the heavenly dimension with his. Even now. Again, the paradigmatic experience of that is the mystery of the sacrament. Now, continuing in the vein of the relationship between knowledge and our lived lives, I want to explore with you the time that we have left, fittingly during the week of ascension, the impact of Jesus' ascension on us and the whole world. Now, in the early church, the Feast of Ascension, and we're going to have a Feast of Ascension today, and is barbecue. And it's at our house at 3 o'clock. And you'll hear about that during the announcements if you haven't heard about it already. But praise God, we are doing a Feast of Ascension in our own Grace Chicago way. The Feast of Ascension, though, back to what we're talking about this morning, uh, it was just as important to the early Christians as the Incarnation was. Christmas, okay. It was just as important as Good Friday and Easter, death and resurrection. And it was just as important as Pentecost. And I really don't think that it's fanciful to imagine that the church fathers and mothers, particularly those in the first five centuries or so, who served the church, I'm pretty sure that if they came back today, um, there are a lot of things that would be a surprise to them. Air conditioning, right? Cheesy joke, okay. Uh, you, know, you know what I think would be a surprise to them, though, was how small a place the ascension of Jesus occupies in our churches and our lives as 21st century Western Christians. The consensus of the early church was that the redemptive works of God that we often refer to you know, with a shorthand, the gospel. The consensus of the early church is that the gospel would not have been complete without that which occurs in Jesus and in us in Jesus' ascension in human flesh to the right hand of the Father, well, he will reign, where he will reign forever and ever as a human being. Now, they would put it this way. Jesus became a human being in the Incarnation. So that his union with humanity unites our humanity in communion with the divine life. Irenaeus, who we often quote as saying, uh, the joy of God is a human being fully alive, 
also famously says this of the ascension in the late second century. I quote Irenaeus, Now this is his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the last times was made a man among men, so that he might join the end to the beginning, that is, join man to God. Sorry, Irenaeus, not writing gender-inclusive language, but you get the point. I forgot to substitute human being. Now this is his word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the last times was made a man, man among men, that he might join the end to the beginning, that is man, human beings, you, me, to God. Human beings are, are God's greatest obsession, to paraphrase another ancient church leader. And the ascension drives that point home. When you are bored, when you are wondering what you're supposed to be doing on any given day, you remember, you are God's great obsession. That's how much he loves you. The ascension reminds us that we are not only united with Christ in his death on the cross, but that our union with the ascended human Jesus is the evidence that God welcomes our still contorted humanity into his divine presence in order to heal us. That's right. Our contorted humanity right now, we are seated with Jesus in that humanity in the very presence of the welcoming and loving God. Even though we can't see it, God can, and that's how much he loves us. Another church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, in arguing with those who did not affirm the humanity of Jesus because they talked about his deity at the expense of his humanity. And of course, that goes on now, right? It's like, you know, it's hard, I think, to hold these mysteries together. And that's why Luke Timothy Johnson says, no one of us believes as much or as well as all of us do in community. It's hard to hold these tensions together. We need to hold each other accountable to do it. You know, oftentimes one wing of the church talks about Jesus as if he is just a human being who lived a really good moral life and he's somebody that you should probably pay attention to. Another wing of the church it, it emphasizes the deity of Christ, the expense of the, the humanity of Christ. And this is happening from the get-go in the church. And so here... You have Gregory responding to people who are emphasizing the deity at the expense of his humanity. And he answers them in this way. That which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. That which Christ has not assumed. In other words, anything that's not assumed into Jesus of our humanity, he hasn't healed. That which is united to his Godhead is also saved. In other words, Jesus heals us not just through the cross, but our healing begins in the incarnation when he assumes our humanity, continues through the cross where he unites us to his death for our sin and into the resurrection and the ascension when we are raised to newness of life and seated with Jesus in God's hospitable and healing presence. In communion, we say we are united by the Spirit to the risen Lord. And Ascension Sunday reminds us that that uniting happens now in the Spirit. Our messy humanity brought for healing into the presence of God. One theologian who's also a poet, um, 
puts it this way when he muses on the fact that when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he brings into the experience of the Godhead human language. He brings our human language into the heavenlies. And I quote, Jesus hears all the words we speak. Words of pain, words of protest, words of rage, words of violence, words of hopelessness, words of confusion, words of abandonment. And he takes those words into the presence of God the Father. And he says, this is humanity. This is who I have brought home with me. These are the words that they say. And sometimes... They're the words that I have said. My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? Okay. That sort of thing. And he says, it's not a pretty sight. It's not edifying and impressive and heroic. It's just real. Real and needy and confused. And here it is, this complicated humanity brought home to heaven and dropped into the burning heart of God for healing and for transformation. The ascension teaches us that God is not turned off by our messiness. He's not, as Rob said on the way to communion, he's not surprised by it. He's not ashamed of it. We are, so often. But God is not. We're seated with Jesus, even now, in our contorted messes being dropped into the burning heart of God to be transformed by his love. I think devotionally and practically what this knowledge does for me and maybe for you, I'm trying to tie it back into this theme we've been dancing around since the beginning, the relationship between the knowledge of, of God's love and its transformative impact on our lived lives. I think that devotionally, what this does for me and maybe for you is that it emboldens me to race towards God when I am at my worst. Knowing that in Christ, I'm already there. If you're like me, when you're at your worst, this is what's so tragic about the human condition. When we're at our worst, we are open throttle in the opposite direction from God's love. 
that's why it's so important that we center our lives around this table and that we believe well and fully together as God's people so that when we are at our worst, we're not open throttle in the other direction, but we're open throttle to this table and to this table and what it means during the week, knowing that we are already seated with Jesus right now in the heavenly places. Come to Jesus when you're at your worst. He's so utterly trustworthy because his ascended and glorified body even still bears the scars of his suffering. He is, as Henri Nouwen so memorably put it, our wounded healer. Come to him who we recognize by those scars, even as we were reminded at communion, that wonderful song, I'll know my Savior by the marks on his skin. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, go forth in a deeper knowledge God's love for you. Amen.